Um, <clears throat> so I want to talk a little bit about surplus powerlessness because um, most of um, uh, most people in the society um, have that in them when they think about making big changes in the society. And um, what is surplus powerlessness? Well, um, you know what powerlessness is. That is, there is um, there are some fundamental uh, disparities between people in this society based on our class structure. There are some people who have immense amounts of wealth. They can um, buy up television stations, radio stations, uh, newspapers. Uh, they can um, uh, have a tremendous impact in terms of funding uh, candidates for public office. Not just the super rich, but also the somewhat rich and even the upper middle class uh, have way more power than most most of the rest of the society because they have um, a part of their income which they don't really need in order to get their fundamental needs met. They don't need it to get their food and and lodging and clothing and and even vacations and uh, um, and uh, the transportation that they need and even um, even some luxuries, and nevertheless, they've got a surplus, and that gives them uh, the ability to use their money um, and their time. And that's another element of their that they have more time to be able to give to politics and to shaping the opinions of um, of those who are running for office, who naturally are going to turn to those people who have the money because they need the money in order to run for office to buy, uh, for example, ads on television or radio uh, and in the newspapers and to hire um, top, top uh, experts in how to run campaigns and like that. So, um, so there's a real disparity in power uh, in this society. And so th- this is what we call real powerlessness. Most of us, uh, the other 70% of the society, uh, we have this, um, a certain amount of real powerlessness because because there is this reality. Okay, but at the same time, there is surplus powerlessness. So what is surplus powerlessness? Surplus powerlessness are the ideas and feelings that we bring into our assessment of what can be done and what we can can make happen. Um, and the surplus powerlessness. Uh, often intensifies the real powerlessness. Uh, Many people um, understand that things are screwed up, but they don't want to think or hear about it because they're certain that nothing can be done. So why make themselves miserable? (laughs) So they don't want to even think about it because they they feel this certainty that nothing can be done to change it. And that um, is when they're bringing in their surplus powerlessness. Um, So... As spiritual progressive activists, we have to learn how to recognize the signs and depths of this in people and help people uh, bring that to consciousness and give people the resources to challenge their own surplus powerlessness and then help them help others to challenge their own surplus powerlessness. So um, where does this surplus powerlessness come from? Well, um, it comes first from, on an emotional level about what people have learned to think about themselves and what they deserve and what they have a right for. And uh, one of the things that, um, that we've discovered in the research that we did um, was that many, many people um, 
actually deep down don't really think they deserve to have the power to change the world. In fact, they don't have to deserve their power to, to win in this world. And so there's this emotional level that people bring in uh, into the um, issues of power, power and powerlessness, which makes them feel more powerless than they really need to be. Um, and um, so we're going to start tonight and talk a little bit about the um, emotional powerlessness but there are also other sources to that powerlessness, the surplus powerlessness, namely uh, the ideas that we hold about ourselves and about the world. And um, so some of that is um, what we're also going to deal with either tonight or next, or next week um, and on the ideas that we hold that make us believe and that nothing much can be changed and that there's no way that people like us, ordinary people, people who don't have a great deal of resources, people who are just regular people, can't make very much of a difference. Uh, and then, of course, there are social and political realities that also contribute to, when we, t- when we understand them a particular way, that contribute to our surplus powerlessness. Namely, we look at the world and say, gee, it's just nothing can happen, nothing can be different. It's funny that, um, I shouldn't say funny, but it's, it's, um, uh, it's wonderful that at the very time that we're talking about this, that um, we're watching um, a, an example of, um, uh, of, this, um, of somebody who's transcending surplus powerlessness. And that's the, um, the campaign of Bernie Sanders, which I think is really a, um, an amazing example of, um, because the truth is, is that there are probably um, of the, the the 47, I think it is, um, uh, Democrats in the Congress, uh, in the Senate, um, there are, or maybe more 45, I'm not sure exactly today, um, there, there are probably 45 of them who will want to be president, who would love to be president, um, but very few of them actually went in that direction. Um, so, um, uh, so the action that they of deciding to run for president um, is an overcoming of what all the others had in their mind, namely, hey, I have great ideas. I uh, I don't have to just accept that Hillary Clinton is going to win this election. By the way, I'm not putting down Hillary Clinton. I'm just talking about the instances inside inside, uh, the minds of somebody who's going to declare to run who doesn't have the resources that Hillary Clinton has. So... Um, so here's Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders is somebody who was self-proclaimed socialist, okay? So, um, uh, and has, and so you might say, well, yeah, it's easy once you're in the Senate, but that's, okay. But even to run for the Senate, um, you might say, yeah, well, in a state like um, Vermont, it's easy to run for, uh, you know, as a, as a socialist because they're all radicals there. Oh, Yeah. Well, I just pulled out the list of senators from from uh, Vermont for the last uh, hundred years, and there is not a single non-Republican in the past hundred years who's been a senator until he ran. Uh, not one, <laughs> not one. De- so, um, so um, the the um, over and over again, Vermont was electing um, uh, electing Republicans. Here comes the guy who's who says. Um, I'm a socialist, and he runs for Congress first, 
and they only have one congressperson in that whole state, okay? <laughs> and he, he runs for, for the Congress and wins. Um, how? By putting forward a vision of what, of what he believed in and arguing for it and sticking with it and convincing people, hey, yeah, actually, you probably want this too. You probably want a lot of what I want. So here's a Republican state that elects a socialist, or at least was a Republican state. But actually, even saying it's a Republican state was me falling into the, the, um, the very kind of thinking I'm trying to critique here. Because there is no such thing as a Republican state and a Democratic state. There's only states that have been that way up till, up till the moment when somebody challenges it and can possibly transform it. And that is always possible. Um, so watching today, uh, when he first declared um, a, a month or so ago, almost everybody said, including people who wanted him to win, he doesn't have a chance. Today in the New York Times, there's an article about um, how Hillary Clinton's campaign is starting to rethink the real challenge from, from Bernie Sanders in this election. And, and they say that in Iowa, where, which is one of the first states to vote, uh, it looks like um, Sanders has now gone from uh, 18% support to something like 34% support. And the Clinton people, who still have a lot more support than, than Bernie, are saying, wow, this is, a real camp, uh, this is a real challenge, a real significant challenge. So what I want to say is it's happening all the time. It always keeps on happening in front of our own eyes. And yet um, we keep on telling ourselves we can't do it. We can't make something fundamental change because, because, quote, everybody knows that it's way X, namely the way it is now, and it can't, uh, can't fundamentally change. Now, we have another example of overcoming surplus powerlessness in the people of Greece. When the people of Greece voted um, to re, uh, essentially to reject the deal that, Europe, um, the, that the European bankers were trying to impose on them this past week, um, they ran against all the established wisdom that said, no, people will always cave to the wills of the, the banks. Now, that may yet happen because the, the, um, the, the um, prime minister who was ele- elected to challenge the power of the banks himself is fearful about going forward. He's got some of that surplus powerlessness in him. But when he put it to the people directly and said, okay, shall we uh, accept all of the, um, the immiseration that comes with these uh, packages to pay back the banks for, for, those, for those loans uh, that were given to past gover- governments, uh, the people said, no, we won't, overwhelmingly said no. So... Um, Again, you see that, uh, that things that run counter to what people are expecting and what people say in their, um, oh, this is how it is, turns out it's not true. Over and over again, it's not true. So, but when, what, re, what is required is overcoming not just real powerlessness, because there's no question that the banks have huge more power than any, of the, any individual uh, gr- person in Greece has, but each of those individuals was able to overcome their surplus powerlessness enough to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. We're going to stand, stand up to it. We're not sure what will happen, but we're going to at least, when we're given an opportunity to vote, we're going to stand up to it. So that's what surplus powerlessness is and how important it is to overcome it. Um, 
And um, so, Kat, I, um, maybe you can tell, talk to us more about how to overcome the uh, where this the internalization of this surplus powerlessness comes from, and uh, how to overcome it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Michael. So I want to talk a little bit about the emotional aspect of sort of surplus powerlessness and where we where we um, where's one of the places that we definitely absorb that from and learn that from. And before I do that, um, one of the reasons we're talking about this is because one of the purposes of this training is to help each of you see the core essence of who you are, that that spiritual energy, that God or goddess, your core goodness, your embodiment of the love energy of the universe, and your capacity to be able to see that in other people, including those that we may view as our enemies. So... Um, so now we're going to turn to where do we, where is, where is that essence in us that we may be able to lost connection with, and how might we get back to that essence? So I want for you to imagine for a moment that you're just this newborn baby, and that you come into this world, and if, or picture yourself as a baby, or picture someone as a baby, and just, and just see the light. I mean, when a newborn baby's born, it's just the potential, the possibility the love and the light of that being it's such a um it's really truly a spiritual entity when it enters this world and um at that time in our life of course we we aren't taught any messages that whatever we want to do is impossible we don't know from bad or wrong or unrealistic um children look at the world with great awe and possibility and i i just was watching this saw this story of a a, a girl who was a baby and she was born with no legs and her parents gave her up for adoption. The family adopted her and she wanted to be a gymnast. So picture this for a moment. This child has no legs. And so the parents told her there was one thing she could never say as a kid or one message she could never absorb as a child. I can't. So she wants to be a gymnast and she has no legs. And her parents have told her you can't say I can't. You can't have that message in your mind. So she became a gymnast. Um, the story goes on, and it turns out that she's actually the birth sister of Dominique Morciano, who's a famous uh, Olympic gymnastics from the United States. And her sister, who has no legs, is this incredible gymnast and is performing all over the country. So, um, so her parents <laughs> gave her this message of, you can, you can, you can. Most of us actually aren't given those messages. And, um, and so we lose this sense of we can do anything in the world um, at a very young age. So, for example, we start crying or expressing ourselves. And um, imagine bumping up against your parent, your parent when you cry. And um, sometimes for parents it may be painful um, to hear a, child crying or hear a child being loud or even seeing a child making a mess. It can just become overwhelming or scary. And so parents react to that in various ways. They may withdraw their love. I'm not saying this is ever intentional or conscientious. It's just kind of what happens. They may try to quiet us down. And what what's happening to this child is this child's desperately trying to get the parent's love, trying to get the parent's approval and affirmation. And yet the child can't figure out how to do that. So you adjust your behavior. You change your essence, essentially. So you, often then you try to become more like what you think 
your parents want you to be like. Sometimes we think this is all unconscious. We think, well, we need to be like them. And <clears throat> all this is this desperate attempt, like I said, to get their love, approval, and affirmation. It's, it's a real tragedy, right? It's a real, real tragedy. And this, in an effort to get our parents' love in that moment, we develop this disjunction, disjunction between our real self and our essence, between our essence, and then the self that you've adopted to be loved or, or to be who you thought you needed to be to receive that love. And we continue to adopt this someone other than our essence um, because that's how we perceive, that's what we perceive we need to do to get love back. And so you're not actually being your authentic self. You're being someone other than your authentic self. And so there's an internalized process that happens, again, unconsciously, that makes it difficult for us to fully trust that we can be ourselves and be loved and accepted. Um, and so this is, this is a tragedy because there's this child, imagine yourself being this child, desperately needing love to survive and having to, quote-unquote, buy that love by becoming someone that you're not, by changing who, you, who your essence is. So I want to take, invite you to take a moment and to envision yourself as that child, that little baby desperately wanting to be seen, to be accepted, to be loved, to be affirmed, to have a sense of belonging for who you really are. And, and just imagine that. And, and probably many of us have had some of that in our lives, but I'm, I'm also guessing many of us have not had it abundantly in our lives. And so I want you to just envision yourself as that little child for a moment. And as you're doing that, try to envision the messages you may have received from your parents that said, you're not enough, you're not okay. Um, that told you to be something different. And if you're capable of doing so, um, go ahead and just take a minute or two. I'm just going to um, be quiet for a minute or two. I'm just going to invite you to write down a couple of those messages that you received. And as you're doing that, I'm just going to say, we also receive these messages from society, from school, from other people that play important roles in our lives and from the social structure in which we live.
Okay, I'm going to continue now, just for a few more minutes, talking about this. So part of the point of all this is that we all, all of us, even those we perceive as our enemies, have parts of ourselves that we are cut off from because we were told not to be that person, not to be as loving, not to be as generous, not to be as a play, playful, not to be as alive and fully ourselves as we came into the world being. And so all of us have this part that we separate ourselves from. And so we receive different messages throughout our lives from our parents. So we might have received a message from our parents that um, we should be quiet or that we should, um, i trying to think one of my messages, <laughs> um, I should be small, you shouldn't be too big, you shouldn't take up too much space. You're too much. Um, so we all have these messages, and what we end up doing is we end up blaming ourselves instead of seeing that these are just messages we're receiving from our parents and from society because they receive them. This is not conscious on our parents' part at all. It's just messages that they receive from their parents and messages that they've received from society at large. So we create this external personality, and at some point we begin to think that's who we really are, and we've lost the connection with who our essence is until we find our way back to it through various efforts in our life. And all of this interacts with our, with our society, and society teaches us that the recognition we receive, the success we receive, is a, fundamental, is a reflection of our fundamental worth or value. And the meritocracy of our society leads almost all of us into blaming ourselves for not being more successful by, by what is the materialist and class criteria of our society, right? And this permeates all levels of society, even members of the ruling class. And so we learn from this to be realistic because you, you don't really deserve something different. And so a lot of people rebel because deep down they really really believe they have a right to, to something different. They connect on some level with their essence, not always in the healthiest ways. But people, we do ultimately connect with it at various times. And so we mistakenly act out these patterns that we've developed in our lives to be loved and to be accepted. And for most of us, that, that negative pattern, if you will, includes not putting forth the greatest vision for ourselves or for our world, for our world, excuse me, because doing so will bump up <laughs> as a child when we put forth ourselves, our fullness, our aliveness, it bumped up against our parents' limitations, and then we felt rejected, and so we're afraid to do that in the world. We're afraid of that rejection. So, so these are some of the ways that... Um, we receive messages and internalize these messages that keep us small, keep us from believing the possibility of a changed world, and that keep us disconnected from our essence. And this is true for all of us, every single person. And so we all have received messages as kids that have told us that something is inherently wrong with us. Again, nothing conscious on the part of our parents. It's just... What happens? And so we're sharing this with you, not because we expect that you're going to go out and start 
talking to people about this in your conversations, but just because it provides a context both to deepen your own self-understanding and to deepen your capacity to be empathic and curious about what's going on for others. So I want to explain for a moment um, a, a way in which empathy arose for me that was incredibly surprising and, and brings together this combination of empathy and an understanding of one's negative love patterns or potentially. So some of you may remember um, in, and I can't remember if it was Obama's first or second election, in the primaries, in the Republican primary, Rick Santorum was running, and Rick Santorum is anti-choice, and was very outspoken about that. And there was a lot of intense criticism and attacks of him as um, trying to control women's bodies, and um, and... It was really quite vitriolic, and I remember watching him one day. Um, I don't remember if it was on, it must have been on my computer because I don't really watch TV. And um, he started talking about his daughter, Isabella. His, it's his eighth child, and she has what's called Edward syndrome. And it's this horrific syndrome, and she didn't have a prediction to be on, to live beyond a year, and she's eight now, I believe, and the predictions of her living beyond 10 are even less, like less than 1%, if that. And so I saw him talking about this, and all of a sudden I had my heart open up with incredible compassion because I realized that for him, believing that women should have a choice to abort a child meant that his child wasn't worthy because one might abort a child who you know has the chances of them living beyond a year or ten years is pretty much non-existent. And so for him, the message of abortion was the message that there was something wrong with his choice and more importantly with his child, his child that he cherishes and loves just as much as every other child. He can see the worth of that child regardless of its capacity to produce, to put out, to do anything. And so when I saw that, I really became much more empathic to him and realized that the discussion of abortion needed to shift from always attacking people who are opposed to the women's choice to a discussion of how do we care for families and how can we have a discussion about this that acknowledges the values and concerns of someone like him and others like him who actually value the essence of a child regardless of their worth. Now, I'm not going to say that these, some of these politicians then don't engage in uh, supporting policies that are completely contrary to valuing that essence later in life, but I do want to just say that. So the, the, where, the, the, where this negative love pattern, I think, maybe comes in is that his, he was unable to really identify that that was part of what was going on for him was his belief that if, if, people, if he supported abortion or women's choice, if he framed it supporting women's choice, that what it meant was there was some way in which he wasn't loving his child and seeing his child's worth. And he couldn't do that because maybe in his childhood he when he was vulnerable as a child, because we're vulnerable as children, he was received a message of you have to be tough, you have to be strong. That's the way you get, that's the way you survive. 
That's the way you get um, ahead in life. That's the way you get love. And so when we can empathically see, I don't know that that's true. I'm just totally making some empathic explorations and possibilities. But when we can combine understanding that all of us have these negative love patterns that we develop, and when we can start to look at people with empathy, it will deepen our capacity to connect and not demonize or create enemy images of those we don't agree with. So that's the connection. Michael, is there anything you want to add to what I've shared? No, I think you've caught it beautifully. Okay. Um, So I'm going to jump now um, into empathy because I've only touched upon it, and it's such a critical component of um, what we're hoping you bring into your conversations. And I'm going to just spend a little bit of time talking about it, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to practice again in your groups. So I'm going to back up a little bit to just give you an overview once again of how I see communication. And I see communication as, as embodying both the qualities of listening and speaking. And we usually forget about communication as being an act of listening. And I know a lot of us have heard of active listening, but um, it really is, communication really is an act of listening and an act of speaking. And I want to bring compassion into both our listening and into our speaking. And so we've spoken quite a bit, or at least some, about the, about the act of listening to ourselves in self-empathy. And I've talked about the fact that that's an internal process that we do. It's not necessarily something that we share at least not in that format. We'll talk in another week about how we speak compassionately. Um, but So the first step, as I've said, is self-empathy. If you envision a tree, you can envision self-empathy as the roots of the tree, and that's the grounding from which you then, from which you then kind of grow up, if you will, or strengthen yourself from. And so empathy is the capacity to understand um, someone else's feelings and needs. And by being empathic, it helps us transform conversations from one where I'm trying to convince someone else to a deeper understanding and connection. And that may lead to them actually um, hearing me differently and agreeing with me, and it may not. But it, it allows for more compassion and understanding to flow both ways in and out of the conversation. So a couple things people always say to me, well, but if I'm doing that, they're going to think I agree. And listening empathically does not mean I agree. There's been plenty of times that I don't agree with people that I'm giving it, that I'm providing an empathic presence with. It, it just means that I'm hearing them and helping them hear themselves in a different way even potentially. Nor is empathy sympathy. Sympathy is um oh, I feel so sorry that you're feeling that way. Sympathy, as you notice, immediately became about me. Empathy is about the other person. Mm 